If you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn to book of Zephaniah, chapter 3. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for the freedom that we have to come into this place and to sing and to study your word. We just pray that this morning we would be willing hearers uh, of your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus, for his work on the cross and in his resurrection. Lord, we thank you for all the things that we even forget and take advantage of. And it's in your son, Jesus' name. Amen. Like I said, turn to book of Zephaniah. A little less popular of a book, probably, for most of us. Zephaniah is in the Old Testament and the Minor Prophets. Again, minor not meaning lesser, but just shorter. The third chapter, verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those who mourn for the festival so that, they, so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors. And I will save the lame and gather the outcast. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At that time, I will gather you together. For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Father, again, we ask that your spirit would be known to our hearts as you teach us from your word. We believe in your spirit, Lord. It's in Jesus' name. So, again, this third Sunday of Advent, we turn to another prophet. Again, another minor prophet. Like I already mentioned, and and this time, uh, again, we're we're kind of in a different time period. So, brief context: 
of northern kingdom Israel, southern kingdom Judah. After Solomon, Israel kind of splits into two nations, ten tribes north, two tribes south. Judah is where the temple is in Jerusalem. It's kind of the primary focus of the Old Testament. Uh, yes, there is a lot of stuff addressed to Israel, the north, northern kingdom. But really, as you study it, it makes more sense that while it's being addressed to northern kingdom Israel, it's also kind of secondarily being addressed to southern kingdom Judah, mostly because southern kingdom Judah lasts longer. It's where the temple is. It kind of has a little bit stronger case for this is what should be happening. It's a totally different conversation. But In around 711 BC, Assyria comes and conquers the northern kingdom. And then comes knocking at the door of Judah's southern kingdom. And when this happens, the people of Israel, excuse me, the people of Judah's southern kingdom, they make some changes. They correct some of the errors, and, and because of the word of God through the prophets who are speaking to Judah at this time, they realize that the reason why Assyria is here, the reason why Assyria is going to conquer us, is because we have turned away from our God. And so they kind of they turn back. Now they, they turn back, and, I, and I, I say kind of because they don't, they don't quite make a full turn back to God. They only sort of do so in partial ways. And then for about another 130 years until about 580 B.C., uh, Judah kind of survives. Again, I, case, I say kind of because they don't really ever get back on their feet. They kind of stick in this weird place of uh, sort of following God, sort of not. And because of that, God raises up the Babylonian uh, Empire. He, he rescues the people of Judah by having the Babylonian Empire rise up, stop the Assyrian advance. And then Babylon conquers Assyria and then goes and conquers the rest of the world, including Judah, again in about 580. Zephaniah speaks in the middle. He speaks in the middle around 640 to 610. So he's, he's pretty much right smack dab in the middle of both of these conquests, both of these times where God sends a threat. He sends a, another nation, another nation's army to be his cup of wrath, as Jeremiah and Isaiah put it. God uses these nations, and yes, they are wicked nations that do wicked things. In fact, uh, in the later parts of the Old Testament, uh, Assyria is called to judgment at the hands of Babylon. So God raises up Babylon for two purposes. One, to stop the advance of Assyria from defeating Judah, and also to punish Assyria for all the wickedness that they did in conquering the world. God's plans are complicated, and we're thankful for that. Right smack dab in the middle, you have this kind of tension, this tension of the people of Judah sort of living their lives right. And this kind of happens because of the leadership. So right before Zephaniah comes on the scene as a prophet who's going to preach to the people of Judah, there's a king named Manasseh. Manasseh is not a good king. 
He leads the people into foolishness. He leads the people into Baal worship. He builds altars in what the Old Testament calls high places, basically just places that you can see from a distance. There's altars there where you would go and you would make sacrifices. There's temples where you would go and and worship the gods, the Baals and the Asherah. And then after Manasseh comes a different king, a king, King Josiah, a king who is in the ranks of the kings of Judah, a good king. Now, he's not the greatest king, but he's a good king. What we find is if you study like the book of Kings and, and, and like Second, Second Samuel and, 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 and even Second Chronicles a little bit, mostly First and Second Kings, is you see this, this, this ebb and flow, this up and down of a good king in Israel who, who led the people to worship God. And then, and then after him comes a bad king and he, and he leads the people into worship of Baals and he allows, he allows all this bad stuff to happen, right? And then another good king and then maybe another good king after him and then a couple bad kings in a row and then a good king and a bad king. And then it's just this back and forth of, of serving God, worshiping God, and then serving false gods and worshiping false gods. This is the pattern, right? And this is exactly what happens, right? before Zephaniah starts to preach. Manasseh's in there, and Zephaniah really, actually right at, as, as this transition happens, this is when Zephaniah starts to speak, and he's like, look, King Josiah, you've got to change. You've got to change all this stuff, or judgment is coming. Remember Assyria and, and Israel, northern kingdom? They thought they were good too. They're not. They were, they were, they were defeated, brutally defeated, and defeated. And sent away to all the world. This gets Josiah's attention and he does make changes. Now, God's work, I, I already said this, I'm going to say it again. Because it, I think it needs to be said. God's, God's plans, God's actions, they're not, they're not simple like probably we would do things. God is much more complex. He's, he's got a much more complex plan and he... He uses many different methods and means to, to bring about discipline and correction and even judgment. Sometimes God sends a foreign power, Assyria, Babylon, uh, Philistia, Ammon, Moab. By the way, every one of those examples, they are pagan-worshipping evil nations. God uses them to judge his people. But God also uses other means. We can maybe call them common means. In Eastern religions, they've observed how the world works, and they call it karma. Now, I'm not saying that karma is right. I'm saying this is what a false religion would recognize God's common uses, common judgments as. Many of us will say, oh, good things happen to bad people, bad things happen to good people. And yes, that does happen. But the reality of life is that by and large, in most cases, over the course of a person's life, good people live better, maybe better is not the right word, but safer, more productive lives than bad people. Now, obviously there's an extreme simplification of what a good person is and versus a, what a bad person is. But there, there is a truth to the observation of what would be called karma. 
If you live a life of decency and good behavior and you help the poor, you tend, tend to have things a little bit better. Let me give you an extreme example that is not a very good argument. And I know it's not a very good argument, so I'm telling you ahead of time. It's a slippery slope argument. I've never done drugs in my whole life. I've never smoked marijuana, never done cocaine or heroin or anything like that. In fact, I, I have such little experience in this area that I don't even know what to say on how it's used, right? I don't use, anyway. I've never done drugs, right? And, and unless that changes at some point in my life, which I don't plan on it, unless that changes or unless I am murdered and the tool of murder is an overdose on drugs, I will not overdose on heroin. And all of you go, well, duh. Of course you won't because you don't use heroin. But this is, my, this is the extremity of the case, right? I'm trying to make a point here. Is that if you, if you use heroin, you're immediately more likely than somebody who doesn't to have a bad outcome. Right, this is obvious. Again, this is not a this is not an argument. I'm not trying to I'm not trying to win a case here. I'm trying to make a point. Let's go to something maybe a little bit more difficult to wrap our minds around, and it'll make sense in a moment. And and just follow me. Let's talk about marriage for a minute. Let's talk about what happens to a culture when when the institute of marriage is devalued. Now, this happens in a million different ways. A million. We're going to talk about one particular. We're going to talk about when we devalue marriage by moving the proper, the proper place for sex outside of the marriage relationship. We live in a culture that is telling us right now that whoever you have sex with, in as many ways, in as many times and places and with as many different parts as you want is totally and completely fine. In fact, it's right and healthy. This is a total and complete lie. Provable by science. Did you know this? Some of you maybe know this. The healthiest intimate relationship that you can have, scientifically speaking, is in a single monogamous relationship. The most pleasure is derived in sex when it's consensual with one partner, scientifically. I hope some of you go, wow, I didn't know that. Because our culture doesn't tell us this. Our culture says, no, 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 everybody, we should, everybody should have sex with everybody. It doesn't matter. In fact, it's good. I don't care who my partner's been with. And I don't care who I've been with. That is also a lie. It's a lie because it doesn't fit with any reality. Say you stand on evolution as the way we got to the point we're at, right? Evolution tells you that, you, that this is not right. That you still care. We as humans evolved. I'm not suggesting that this is right but this is the pattern of thought. We evolved to be raised in family units. And family units don't work because of jealousy, 
in the realization that our, our chemical makeup doesn't tell us this is the right way to go. To be in, right, we're supposed to be in single families, single relationships. Now, what happens here? Right? We're, we're, we're quite literally witnessing this now. Where our culture is saying, no, sex doesn't belong in marriage. It belongs everywhere. With whoever you want. And what's happening to marriages? They're being devalued. Now, they're being devalued in about 50,000 other ways, but this is the primary one. And you know what else is scientifically proven? Studies have shown that when you start to devalue marriage, culture starts to be corrupted and starts to break down. It starts to break down in unusual ways. Namely, we start to care about everybody else. Families are designed to teach us how to care about everybody else. Did you know that? Healthy families, there's selfishness is at a minimum. Good, healthy families, selfishness becomes a minimum. When marriages and families start to be pulled apart, you know what happens? You know why those families are starting to be pulled apart? Selfishness. And when you become selfish as a culture, what do you do? You stop caring about the people who are suffering. Stop caring about the people who are less fortunate. So, right, we say, oh, it's all about this. It's all about this. Oh, no, it's not. It's actually much more terrifying. So why do I bring that up in this instance? Why do we care about this? Does this have anything to do with Zephaniah? Yeah, it does. Because what was happening during Manasseh's reign is the Baals were starting to be worshipped. Anybody know who the Baals are? Most commonly in, in Canaan, Baals are the fertility gods. I think I've shared this before. I'm going to share it again because I want you not to forget it. Fertility gods. And you know how you worship a fertility god? You don't come to a church and sing songs to, his, to praise his name. You go and you have sex with a temple prostitute. That's worship. Now, whenever a culture starts to be okay with this, and sex outside of marriage becomes perfectly fine, what happens? The culture starts to deteriorate. And so under Manasseh's reign, with pagan Baal worship, the culture starts to be deteriorated. And this is God's common acts of judgment and discipline. Where bad things really actually do start happening to bad people and bad cultures. And there starts to be a deterioration of the realities of what God has called his people to be. By the way, let me clarify this. God has called his people to be unselfish. To care about the orphans and the widows, and the sojourners in the land, those who are less fortunate than ourselves. And here's a statistic for you. You, every single person in this room, every person in this room right now is in the top 1% of human history. You are, the, you are in the top 1% of the most wealthiest people who have ever lived on the face of the earth. And if you are, in fact, in, in your culture today, actually a fairly wealthy person, if you make more than, say, fifty to $75,000 a year, you're in the 1% of the, of the nation. You are so far above everybody else in human history, it's astronomical. It's actually silly. 
And you know what we do as a culture for the poor and the orphans and the widows? Very little. Now that's, that's a blanket statement that's really very harsh for many of the people who are even in this church who help out a great deal, who give a great amount. But as a culture, as, as let, let me rephrase that so that it makes more sense. As a Christian culture, for us in the church, we do not do a very good job. In fact, I think we do such a poor job as we probably should hear the scolding of Zephaniah that comes in chapters 1 and 2. Because that was what was happening. There's a corruption of the culture. Marriage starts to be devalued in their culture. Prostitution is on the rise. And everybody says, do whatever's right in your own eyes. And you know who suffers? The people who were suffering before. And then here comes Josiah. King Josiah, he comes on the scene and he goes, this isn't right. This is not how it should be. God called us to be unselfish and to care for those who are less fortunate. And by the way, that that starts in Genesis and goes all the way through to Revelation. James tells us true religion is to care for the orphans and the widows. What God has blessed you with, you should bless others with. Start to finish in the Bible. That's how God's love manifests itself. Josiah's like, we got to change this. We got to we got to shake this up. We got to change what we're doing. We got to we got to figure this out. And so, what does he do? He starts to clean things up. He gets rid of the Baal uh, altars and temples. He calls the people back to Yahweh worship. He starts cleaning things up, and you know what happens? Real lasting change. Real lasting change happens because one man, albeit a king, made a decision to serve God. Again, this is now common judgment, but on the other side. Common grace, common mercy. Whereas before, whenever things start to be corrupted and twisted and and, and skewed, God's hand of judgment and discipline naturally starts to happen. Whenever we start to clean things up and to make changes and to to seek to follow after Him, things start to fit back together properly. This is what Josiah starts to do. He sees the pain and the suffering in his culture and he makes a decision that the right thing to do It's not to create more programs, but to bring the people back into a worship of their God. Verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Zion. Of Jerusalem. Let me clean this up a little bit so that we understand what's going on. This is poetry. O daughter of Zion, O Israel, O daughter of Jerusalem, that's all the same thing. People of God, that's what he's saying. Remember how, uh, you know, I was on, uh, for a little while, about two or three months ago, I was on a kick saying, you know what the most, the number one command in Scripture is? It's to praise and worship your God. I feel like I should rest my case here with this one. It's like, sing, praise God. And, and he, sing aloud, right? Sing aloud is not, 
It's glory to God, right? So there's no music, so that was really bad. Not that it would have been any better any other time. It's singing emphatically without a care, because I actually don't care much if you think I was a bad singer, if I'm glorifying God. Sing aloud, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult. Why? Why? What? Ready? Yahweh, the Lord, verse 15, has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleaned away your enemies. Now here's what, here's what Zephaniah is saying. Enemies, both nations coming in judgment and enemies common judgment. Something is happening in your culture and, and things are changing. Now, it might be at this point that we ask this question. Am I really doing anything? Missy and I, we've sponsored a, a child, Nathaniel, from Nicaragua, I think, for like seven or eight years through World Vision. We spend 36 odd dollars a month for him to have food every day, to go to school, and hear about Jesus, right? And you know how my brain works? Because we get stuff from World Vision often, like four, five, six times a year, you know, Christmas cards, Easter things, send more money, things like that. You know what I do? I go, I wonder how much of that $36 is actually going to the boy I sponsor. And then I go, well, isn't that silly of me to say, right? Because $36 isn't very much. Is it really doing anything? I told our Bible study on Wednesday night that I felt very scolded. That scolding continued to happen into Thursday and Friday this week as I was going over this passage. Because you know what I realized this week? Every time I get one of those little notes or cards or whatever information about the boy I sponsor, there's very few times that I can remember where I immediately went to my knees and prayed for him. $36. It's not doing anything. And yet, the one thing that maybe would do something, I don't know. Or what about, what about, you know, there are many places in our area that have homeless shelters or, or food banks or things of that nature where maybe I could go. And I could volunteer for a couple hours on a Saturday and I could, I could pass out soup. You know what my brain does? If I don't go, they'll still do it. And I know I'm not the only person who does that. Because the places that help the poor, the orphans, and the widows, and the sojourners in the land aren't bursting forth with the church. Josiah went, I, I know that I can't do everything, but I'm going to do something. And by the way, if you, if you just said to yourself, yeah, but he was the king of Israel... He had a pretty large influence. I'm going to guess that you have a bigger influence than you think you do. I know I do. And yet, what do I do? I make I justify the things that I don't do that I know I should. 
Are you ready for something really neat, though? Because the text goes on. Second half of verse 15, he says, he says, the king, the king of Israel, comma, King Josiah. Nope. That's not what it says. The king of Israel, Yahweh. Who is doing the work? Josiah is. He's out there making the physical actions. He's the one. He's like, hey, hey, construction guys, go tear down that altar. Why isn't Josiah getting the credit? Because while he might be doing the things, while he might be physically making the efforts, it's not his work to do. Nor has it ever been. While you might go and serve the homeless, it's not your work to do. It's God's. And in the same breath that we say that, we also must recognize that it's through his power that anything happens. We send $36 to a boy in a country far away. I've never met him. I've never, I've never talked with him. I've sent him letters. But it's not my work to do. It's God's. And what Scripture promises us, what Scripture promises us, after God tells us to go and do this, it's not a request, it's a command. Go and serve. Go and help. Go and feed and give drink to and clothe those who don't have what you have. Immediately, every time we are told that we will be given what we need to accomplish the task. Josiah was given the needs that he needed to accomplish the task. And he went and he did it. And when Zephaniah saw this happening, he looked at King Josiah and said, that's not him, that's God. That is Yahweh at work. And he says, this is fantastic. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. He's in your midst. And you shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord, your God, is in your midst, the Mighty One, who will save. I mentioned the last couple of weeks what prophecy looks like, and I've used a picture or an illustration. I've talked about the Rocky Mountains. You drive up to the Rocky Mountains, you're off in the distance, you see the Rocky Mountains, the, the mountain range. It's not a singular mountain, it's many mountains. But as you're off at a distance, you see multiple mountains and they blur together because they're too far away to distinguish the individual little mountains and, and all that kind of stuff. And as you get closer and you get closer, you start to recognize things. You start to distinguish the fact that, oh no, I'm not looking at one mountain, I'm looking at three mountains. There's a mountain in the back that I just really just see the peak of, and then there's a mountain in front. Maybe there's a mountain over here to the side. Right? And you start to distinguish the difference. We live in this very weird place. Zephaniah was off in the distance. He was about 100 miles away from 
the Rocky Mountains, and he saw this picture, and he says, fear not. Never again will you fear evil. You know who comes after Josiah? Bad king after bad king after bad king after that comes Babylon. One of the most wicked nations that has ever ruled on the earth, by the way. So what is, what is Zephaniah, what is he even talking about? Well, he's talking about this further mountain. But when we do this, we can't ever, we can't ever devalue what Zephaniah is actually saying. When we look at the prophets, when we study the prophets, we learn something about our own existence. We learn that we are in this already, but not yet. Or this, this reality that Zephaniah has been talking about and that was fulfilled in part in his lifetime through King Josiah and is yet to be completed even after us 2,500 years later. Is that we live in this already, but not yet. God has, in fact, entered into his midst. It says, the King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. Well, who is the Lord in our midst? And, and, and by the way, what is he doing? You know, another truth that you find from Genesis chapter 1 all the way to Revelation chapter 22 or whatever is that God is the God of salvation. God is the God of restoration. And that's what God has been doing on his earth from the beginning and will continue to do until the end. This is his work. This is the manifestation of his presence on the earth and what Jephaniah realizes is that Josiah's work is the Lord's work to bring about salvation. Both from the enemies that are attacking and from the common enemies of judgment in his life. And so as Josiah starts to work, everybody else starts to work and everybody else starts to see the hand of God at work and salvation comes to them because of it. We look around at all the suffering in our lives. I have lived a life of luxury. I know this, and all of you probably know it too. I grew up in a home where both of my parents were there. Both of them worked. Both of them loved me. Both of them cared for me. Both of them came to my events, sports, school. They invested time and energy. I can count on my hand, probably in less than the, the five fingers on my hand, how many times before I graduated high school, I didn't go to church, not counting sickness, including vacations. My parents thought it was necessary not to, not to just say it's a good thing to go to church, but to say it's a mandatory thing to go to church and to instill the knowledge of Christ in my life. I have never suffered. I've never been punched in the face. Never once. Think about that for a minute. I am a preacher of the gospel of Christ, which, by the way, is one of the most offensive things to this world because the world hates Christ. And I have never once ever been told not to say it. I have never suffered. But I know people who have. And you know what I do? I justify my lack of action because I'm one man. But maybe I should be more like Josiah. I think God himself tells us to be more like Josiah. You know what he says? 
In verse 17, He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Remember that number one commandment of Scripture to praise God? You know what was just said? That when we enact God's world, when we are God's citizens in this world and we start to do the things that He has called us to do, you know what God's doing in heaven? He's singing praises of us. God! Any of you worthy of that? I'm not. Let me answer my own question. You're not. But he does. Because that's how much he cares about his grace. Isn't that that stunning? I will gather those, verse 18, who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. And at that time I will bring you in. At that time I will gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praise among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says Yahweh. Whew. You are not the agent of change in this world. God is. He has called you to that action. He said, I'll do, I'll do everything you you just you just step out, right? You just you just make a step. Be my citizens. Right? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. In America, we say the president is supposed to look like his people. In the rest of the world, when kings would walk around, the the citizenship didn't say, you should be like us. The king said, no, you are like me. We, like Christ, live our lives out sacrificially. And through the power of the Spirit that, by the way, dwells in you, change will happen. Now, can you imagine for just a moment what that would look like? If one man changes the the people of Israel, can you imagine if the church started doing this even really in part? Be astronomical. But what do we do? Change policy. New president. Throw money. Mm. Serve God. Worship Him. Value what He values. And don't make excuses. And change will happen. God will gather those who are broken, the lame, the outcast. He will restore those who are hurting, those who suffer. And we will live in this reality of the already, but not yet. Where we see change happening. We see the kingdom of God becoming a real kingdom. Knowing all the while that soon 
it will find its fullness. And we will praise the day when that happens. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord and King Jesus, Spirit who moves, we thank you and we praise you for your work, for your work of restoration. We ask that you would strengthen each of us to be your citizens, to be your priesthood in this world. Father, I thank you and I praise you that you have invited us to be part, to be the instruments of your work. Lord, it's in your precious and holy Son, Jesus' name that we pray.